This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Hi, I'm Sandy, your host. This case was one of the first cases I ever covered, but unless you've been listening for a very long time, you probably haven't heard it because I took some of the earliest episodes down. The podcast has improved in time, but this is one I wanted to redo and improve on. I hope you like it. Today, I'm going to take you to a deserted island. Well, At the time of this case, it was occasionally deserted. Imagine a fairly small ring of islands surrounding a peaceful lagoon, the lagoons teeming with ocean life. Outside the island ring is miles and miles of open ocean. The sea is always moving, directed by the winds, currents, and tides, but the lagoon sits there calm and inviting to sailors who have been tossed on their boat for days. This particular ring of islands is called Palmyra Atoll. It's located almost a thousand miles due south of the Hawaiian Islands, about one-third of the way between Hawaii and American Samoa. It's a tiny little dot on the map in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The island started as an undersea volcano that rose above the surface. A coral reef grew around the island, But over thousands of years, the volcano eroded away, receding into the ocean, but the coral reef that was around it stayed put. Atolls are pretty hard to spot from the sea, because they're only a few feet above sea level. Wave action can cover up the side of them unless you happen to be close by. This can be very dangerous, because they're often surrounded by sharp coral reefs. Many ships have sunk while navigating the waters near atolls. Entering one can be a daunting task. Palmyra Atoll has a history of mysteriously disappearing ships, and some consider the island to be cursed. It was named after an American ship that landed there in 1802. It was later annexed by the United States as part of the Hawaiian Islands Territory, and during World War II it was used as a military base. The military built an airstrip that joined two of the islands together. When the war was over, it was cheaper to leave everything behind than to ship everything home. Of course, they left their bunkers and housing, but they also left airplanes, gasoline, and all kinds of other supplies on the islands. Several buildings and water collection tanks still remain. Today, the island is an unspoiled tropical wilderness and is home to many different kinds of marine life and seabirds. It's an American National Wildlife Refuge, and there are few, if any, permanent inhabitants. In 1974, the airstrip had been out of use for years, but adventurous sailors would travel hundreds of miles to visit Palmyra. For most, it was a place to rest as they moved on. But just over two months in the latter part of 1974, two couples would make the island their home, but only one couple would survive. Mac and Muff Graham loved the sea, and they loved the sea wind, their boat, a 37-foot catch. Mac Graham, a native of Stamford, Connecticut, attended college in Michigan and worked for General Motors in the 1950s. Then his uncle died, leaving Mac with a trust. He wasn't fabulously wealthy, friends say, but the inheritance enabled him to live the life of his choice, the life of a yachtsman. Mac already owned the Sea Wind when he moved to San Diego in the 1950s. It was there that he met Muff, a native San Diegan whose family had no money at all. 
according to friends. They were married in 1961 in La Paz, Mexico, and promptly set sail on their honeymoon, a six-year circumnavigation of the world. The Grahams, who had no children, lived aboard the Sea Wind for several years in the marinas of San Diego Bay. They weren't home so much as home-ported. He and a friend operated a boat-building and remodeling business in the early 1970s, but he missed the freedom of the sea. As a couple, the Grahams made friends easily. Muff was a gracious hostess, and she kept fine china, crystal, and sterling silverware on the sea wind. Mac took charge of navigating and keeping the boat in repair, while Muff handled the cleaning and cooking. A man of many talents, Mac could scuba dive and was a fine chess player, but it was as a sailor that he truly excelled. In the early 70s, they planned a trip, their second, an extended cruise, but having spent many long years on a boat, Muff remembered many of the bad times, the long passages, the storms they encountered, the pirates they encountered, and frankly, the hours of travel and strain wore on her. She wasn't really ready for this second trip. She had an uneasy feeling that it might be their last. She had shared this feeling of doom with her family and friends who told her that she could stay with them, Mac could travel alone, but ultimately she felt like her place was at Mac's side. Mac was tall, lean, and rugged-looking. Muff was a dark-haired beauty, and both were tough, smart, and adventurous. Mac knew his boat inside and out. He had the best that money could buy. Thanks to his uncle and his expertise, he was able to experience life on the sea in a way that many would be envious of. He had read about Palmyra. He loved the idea of searching through the wartime ruins. Maybe he'd even find the rumored treasure hidden somewhere on the island. Mostly, though, he wanted to live like a hermit, just he and his bride, alone on a deserted island for as long as a full year. They'd sail from California to Hawaii, Reprovision, then travel the final thousand miles south to Palmyra. The whole trip would likely last two years. Muff enjoyed the luxuries of life, and having had plenty of experience provisioning for a long trip like this, she could whip up tasty meals, even if she had no access to fresh foods. She made sure they brought things that would make them happy and keep them well-fed. Can you imagine the time and preparation it would take to live on a boat for a year? without ever stopping anywhere to reprovision? Not only would you have a ridiculous amount of food on the boat, you'd also have to have spares and backup systems for everything. You'd have to rely on yourself for repairs. And you'd have to carefully ration your gas, fuel, and water supplies. Surely you'd have to have a reliable water catchment system and containment system, too. These things were all taken into consideration and planned for, as the Grams prepared for their epic adventure. Meanwhile, just over 2,400 miles from California, in the Hawaiian Islands, another couple dreamed of Palmyra. Stephanie Stearns was born in the U.S. Her father was abusive, according to her brother. He didn't seem to want his children, and he was an alcoholic. Luckily, their mother was much more attentive to their needs. When Stephanie was 10 years old, her parents would divorce. Her mother moved them to Canada, which Stephanie hated. She began acting up in school, and her grades dropped quickly. After a few years, the family moved to California, 
which was much more to Stephanie's liking. Her grades went up and she graduated high school. Upon graduation, her uncle called her from Hawaii and offered her a job. He owned a restaurant, and if she wanted, she could come work with him. She thought this was a great idea. Soon, years had passed, and Stephanie had settled into life on the Big Island. She was 26 years old when she walked past a tall, good-looking guy in a parking lot. The man's head swiveled when he saw Stephanie. He turned in his tracks and walked back to her, asking her if she wanted to walk with him to a nearby park. She said yes, and hours later, after talking and smoking a joint together, they kissed for the first time. She fell hard and fast for this man. He was Dwayne Buck Walker, but went by several pseudonyms. I'll call him Buck going forward. According to Stephanie's family, they were an odd couple. Stephanie was fairly young and from a pretty well-off family. Not rich, but very comfortable. She was described as a hippie, but was responsible and hardworking. Buck was ten years older than she was, and he'd been in jail. During their talks in the park, he kept this information to himself. He'd been in trouble with the law on several occasions, but had been jailed in California for armed robbery. He told Stephanie he dreamed of a place where people could do whatever they wanted without the thumb of authority holding them down. It wasn't long before they began living together. Buck was looking for a job, and Stephanie had a friend who was looking for help. She introduced the two men, and Buck, in no time at all it seemed, slept with his new boss's wife. Stephanie was heartbroken, but in their time together, Buck had shared more of his life, and he'd shared that he'd been to jail. He told her he didn't believe in monogamy. He said he lost too much time while in jail and wanted to be with more women, but that she was the only one he truly cared about. Ew. Buck lost that job, obviously. At some point, he came up with his own business plan. He and a friend would sell marijuana and MDMA. It went well for a while, until he sold drugs to an undercover officer. He was charged with a felony, and since Stephanie had been in the car with him when he made the sale, she was charged with possession. They were both released on bail. Buck told Stephanie he wasn't going back to jail. He was going to run instead and that he wanted her to go with him. He came up with a plan. He'd buy a boat, they'd fix it up, and they'd find some place where they could live without society's rules. They researched together and saw that Palmyra might be the perfect fit for what they wanted. Buck would grow marijuana on the deserted island, and some friends would come by and pick it up in exchange for supplies and goods, things that he and Stephanie would need to survive while there. They'd live there for a few years until the heat died down. Then they'd come back and live under new names, happily ever after. They began their boat search and realized quickly that they couldn't afford much when it came to boats. They found a 27-foot sailboat that had sunk and was brought back to the surface. It had no mast, no rigging, no toilet, and no engine, but the price was right. $400 later, they were boat owners. That's equal to just over $3,000 today. They moved onto the boat as it sat on dry land. They fixed it up with their limited income. Buck built a mast out of two-by-sixes and used old electric cables as rigging. 
If anybody used outboard motor that could be attached to the back of the boat and dropped into the water when it was needed. He sealed the holes in the wooden boat with fiberglass. When it was time to put the boat into the water, it promptly tipped over, which was a problem he blamed on everyone except himself. The problem was rectified, and the boat was floating in Honolulu Harbor as the date of their trial was quickly approaching. In Honolulu's harbor, boats of all kinds were found. For some, it was just a hobby, but for others, it was a way of living. Buck and Stephanie were officially liveaboards, but their boat was also for escaping the law and jail time. Stephanie knew this, and she knew that Buck would be in jail for several years if they stayed. When she shared their escape plans with her family, they knew they had to talk her out of it. Her mother and brother flew from the U.S. to Hawaii to look for Stephanie, Buck, and for the boat they had recently bought. But when they flew over the harbor, they realized how difficult a task it would be to find one single boat among the sea of boats in the harbor. As luck would have it, they ran into Stephanie on land as she walked out of a store that bordered the harbor. They invited themselves on board, and when they got to the boat, what they saw made them worry for Stephanie's safety. In their opinion, the boat was not in good shape. They didn't know much about boats or sailing, but it seemed like this one was a mess. When they asked Stephanie why she was doing what she was doing, she said she couldn't let Buck go back to jail. Her family found out that if Buck pled guilty and faced his charges, Stephanie's charges would be dropped. So they asked Buck why he wouldn't do this to help her, and he said, yeah, I probably should, but Stephanie insisted that she couldn't live without Buck. The next day, her mother came back to the couple with a proposal. She said, Stephanie, I will let you take over my business. I'm ready to retire anyway, and it's already bringing in a good revenue. Stephanie told her mother that if she had asked a few months ago, she would have said yes, but now she was committed to the plan that she and Buck had together. There was no talking sense into Stephanie at this point, and her family gave up trying. When on the boat, her mother had noticed they didn't even have a radio to communicate with the outside world. The couple were out of money and didn't have enough money to buy one, so Stephanie's mother gave her the money to do so. When she asked about the radio later, Stephanie told her that she and Buck had decided they should spend the money on flour and baking supplies instead because they'd have to feed themselves for a year. Her mother was shocked they would even consider going to sea without a two-way radio. When she shared her concerns about Stephanie's safety, Buck blew her off, saying there wasn't anyone they really wanted to talk to anyway. Buck and Stephanie spent most of the money they had fixing up the boat. When it was finished, they did something that many old salty sailors will tell you is very bad luck. They changed the name of their boat. They renamed her the Iola. They spent nearly all their money on provisions, but they made space for some vegetable and marijuana seeds. When they were done packing everything away, they had $30 left to their names. On June 1st, 1974, regardless of what their families had to say, Buck and Stephanie set sail for Palmyra Atoll. They felt that a new adventure was beginning and they could leave all their troubles behind them. They headed south with the wind blowing gently, filling their sails and moving the boat forward. Eventually, they lost sight of land and were filled with the exhilaration of the new course their life was taking. They didn't have to worry about the charges behind them. All they had to worry about 
was their future together alone in a beautiful paradise. Except they weren't truly alone. They had three dogs aboard the boat with them. They had a small dog named Puffer that belonged to Stephanie and two larger dogs that belonged to Buck. One was a female lab mix. The other was an unneutered pit bull mix named Popolo. None of the dogs were well-trained, and Popolo was known to have a mean streak. Most boats didn't have any dogs, but this boat had three. They had brought 150 pounds of dog food for three dogs, and they planned to be gone for over a year. I know that each and every one of you that owns a dog knows that that is not enough food. However, at least they were responsible enough they had brought some netting and wrapped their lifelines in this netting to keep the dogs from falling overboard. After a few hours of sailing, the winds died completely and the boat came to a standstill. They dropped their sails and bobbed around on the ocean, not going anywhere for hours. They were smart and decided not to run their engine. It would use up precious gas that they might need for the rest of their trip. Besides that, the outboard would have had to been taken off the boat's railing where it was stored and attached to the back of the boat. But Buck was getting seasick from all the rocking and rolling and didn't want to do it. The winds picked up later that afternoon and they put the sails back up, but this time they put a smaller jib up and they were underpowered. This caused the boat to rock and roll more than it would if they had kept the mainsails up in the light winds. Buck's seasickness worsened so he went down below to take a nap, leaving Stephanie to sail as the evening progressed. Over the next couple of days, the seasickness and the combination of the boat moving so slowly made Buck become irritable. Stephanie said she had never seen him that way and she didn't like it. He tried to compensate for the seasickness by eating more as he heard that helps prevent it, but shortly after eating he would launch himself out of the cabin heaving over the side and feeding the fish. This cycle repeated over and over, which used up their precious supplies of sugar, oatmeal, biscuits, and honey. They had brought a lot of food, and the boat was filled as full as it could be with supplies for the trip, but it was a small boat. It simply couldn't hold everything they might need, and their food supply was precious. Stephanie was already beginning to worry about running out. After several days at sea, Buck wasn't getting better. He said he was too weak to come up and steer the boat, so Stephanie spent the majority of her time at the helm. She was becoming exhausted and sunburned. She became so tired, she resorted to tying the steering wheel in place and forcing herself to wake up every half hour or so to come up and check it. All the while, Buck slept soundly. Imagine her anger when she exhaustedly came down from steering one day to see Buck smoking pot and cleaning his gun in between naps. The Iola was a wooden boat. Wood boats tend to leak a little, but boats that have sunk before tend to have bigger holes. The holes in the Iola had been improperly filled with fiberglass. At anchor, this was fine. It kept the rain and the ocean water out, but while sailing, a boat tends to move around a lot. The hull flexes, Fiberglass doesn't flex like wood. They don't move the same way. This motion caused some of the fiberglass to separate from the wood, and the Iola began to leak. Buck and Stephanie had to run the generator constantly to empty the bilges. 
Not only that, but the forward hatch leaked badly, too. Every time it rained, or the bow of the boat dipped into the sea, water came pouring in. The front cabin was constantly wet. This trip wasn't going to be sunshine and cold drinks as they imagined it would. After a few days of sailing, they saw storm clouds ahead. They watched as the storm approached and a squall hit the Iola. Stephanie found herself shivering and cold at the helm. The storm brought pouring rain and gale-force winds. The winds stressed the sails and the boat tipped to the side. Buck came running out of the cabin to close the front hatch. In doing so, he slipped and hit his head, knocking himself unconscious. His body slid toward the water, and Stephanie began to panic. This was something she'd always worried about. Luckily, the netting, bought for the dogs, kept him from sliding overboard. Stephanie quickly tied the helm up and made her way to Buck. It took a minute or so before he was able to regain consciousness enough to stand. She helped him walk back to the cabin, and Stephanie once again took over the boat, throwing on foul-weather gear and realigning the boat so it didn't lean too much. The winds were screaming, and the boat was hard to steer. Stephanie had tethered herself to the boat, but she was getting pummeled in the face by water and wind. The water pelted her eyes so hard she could barely keep them open. She began to panic as she called for Buck, who was able to make it topside. He helped turn the boat downwind, which felt better, but now they were going the wrong direction. Luckily, the squall disappeared as quickly as it had come, and the excitement was over for the time being. The sailing became nice and steady. The days began to blend together. The couple thought they were making slow progress toward their goal, which was great, but the problem was they didn't really know where they were. They had no global positioning devices, no radar, not even a radio to try and reach other boats to find out where they were. Stephanie had agreed to be the navigator. She brought with her a short, ten-step guide explaining how navigation works. Neither of them had any practical use navigating, and they had never used the guide before this trip. Stephanie followed the ten steps, did the calculations, and found that they had traveled 300 miles south, which they believed to be excellent. The next day, she found that they had traveled 700 miles east, and that couldn't be right. She realized the boat could not go that far in a single day, and she didn't know what she'd done wrong. Until she figured it out, the plan was to keep the compass heading due south, which is what they did. Each morning, she followed the procedure in her 10-step guide, hoping for clarity. She ran the numbers over and over, but still had problems. On the tenth morning, she finally realized her mistake. She had been using equations for southern latitudes, while they were still in the northern latitudes. She fixed her mistake and realized happily that they were halfway to Palmyra. Buck was ecstatic. He had been more worried than he had let on, and Stephanie had been worried because in the research that she had done, she knew that since Palmyra was such a low-lying island, only six feet above sea level, it could only be seen from six to eight miles away. Her navigation could take them outside of that short distance, and they could easily miss the island completely. She also worried about the amount of food and supplies they had brought with them. They were going through a surprising amount of it, 
sugar, and other long-life staples. Buck had planned to supplement their meals with plenty of fish, however they'd caught no fish so far. Buck put more effort into it and was able to pull in a 30-pound tuna, but he pierced his thumb with the hook. The hook went all the way through and had to be cut with pliers in order to be removed. They enjoyed that fish, but Buck soured towards fishing. We can't forget about their poor dogs, who were trapped for weeks on the boat. I can only imagine where those dogs were going to the bathroom, and have to wonder how often they were fed and watered. On June 19th, they spotted land. Excitement was at a peak. They could see the entrance to the lagoon. Its calm water was so inviting, but it would be days before the hull of the Iola touched the serene lagoon. The outboard motor that Buck had stored in the boat was supposed to have been brought in out of the elements. However, he neglected to do this. During the 19 days at sea, the motor had frozen up with salt and rust. Because of this, they were unable to motor into the harbor. They ended up having to sail back and forth and float in front of Palmyra's entrance for seven days before the winds were favorable enough to make an entry. Imagine being stuck on a damp boat after having spent 26 days sailing. You're hot, sweaty, thirsty, windblown, and exhausted. You stink. Your lover stinks. Your dog stink. The boat smells so bad even the cockroaches want to get off. All the while, this beautiful island oasis sits there invitingly. Seven days likely felt like an eternity. This made them thrilled when they woke up and realized that the winds had changed and that now was the perfect time to attempt to sail in. They lifted the sails, but after only a few minutes they heard a huge crunch and the boat came to a wobbling stop. Immediately Buck dropped the sails. They had hit a reef and they weren't able to get off. Buck dove in on one side and was happy to see that only the iron part of the keel or the bottom of the boat was touching the coral. No other parts of the boat had been damaged. He decided to swim around to the other side and check it as well. As he rounded the hull, he came face to face with a six-foot-long shark. He screamed and tried to scramble up the side of the boat. Stephanie reached down to help him out, and this was when they heard the sounds of dinghies approaching. Buck was embarrassed. When the lovely people in the two dinghies offered their assistance and pulled the Iola off the coral and into the harbor, Buck remained stoic and silent while Stephanie thanked them profusely. Once safely in the lagoon, they dropped anchor and celebrated their arrival. Shortly after setting anchor and dying to get off the boat and walk the beach, they took the dogs to shore. The dogs were thrilled and ran in circles, yipping to each other. They had been on the boat for a total of 28 days straight. When Stephanie stepped into the sand of the little beach, she felt as if the earth was moving underneath her. For the first time, she felt like she had truly arrived in paradise. Over the following days, they got to know the rest of the people in the small harbor, which made Stephanie happy. Buck, on the other hand, was disappointed that there were so many people there. Jack Wheeler was one of the first to introduce himself. He told them that he had been to Palmyra several times and called himself the mayor of Palmyra. 
he took Buck and Stephanie on a tour of the island and warned them to be careful about swimming. There were plenty of sharks in the lagoon, and they were an aggressive variety. The sharks used the area as their breeding ground. This meant there were plenty of fish there, too, but that they were kind of off-limits to people because most of them had ciguatera. This is a toxin in fish that, if ingested, it can cause a person to get very sick and possibly die. This meant they weren't suitable for dogs to eat, either. He must have seen the look of surprise and dismay on Buck and Stephanie's faces, because he went on to tell them that there was plenty of food on the island if you were willing to do the work. There were unlimited numbers of coconuts, and there was an area where birds laid eggs that they could eat. Sure, the eggs tasted fishy, but they were edible. If Buck and Stephanie cleared an area one day, the next day they could go back and collect fresh eggs from that area. He took them to the nesting grounds, and as soon as they arrived, Popolo, the pit bull mix, killed one of the birds. This angered Jack and embarrassed Stephanie, but Buck didn't seem to have a problem with it. Jack hesitatingly continued the tour, showing them how to collect and clean coconuts. Then he lay little pieces of coconut husk down on the ground. He returned to the husks an hour later to show Stephanie that coconut crabs and hermit crabs could be found and eaten as well. He said that between the hermit crabs and the rats on the island, anything that could be eaten would be. One of the last things he showed them was a cistern that was full of water, fresh enough to drink and plentiful enough to take showers. This felt like a luxury to Buck and Stephanie, who enjoyed their first shower that evening and celebrated by making love on their boat. While Buck and Stephanie were sailing back and forth in front of the island, Mac and Muff Graham were on their way to Palmyra from Hawaii as well. They had an easy sail and made great time. Mac had essentially forced Muff onto the boat and off the docks. She had loved her time in Hawaii and wasn't ready to leave. When they arrived in Palmyra a couple days after Buck and Stephanie, Jack was the first one to see them. As the sea wind made its way into the lagoon, he whistled and remarked about how beautiful the boat was. Buck was frustrated that even more people had come to what was supposed to be his deserted island, but he warmed slightly when he later realized that Mac was a smoker. The two men introduced themselves, and Buck asked for a cigarette. Mac happily complied, but was taken aback when Buck took nearly half the pack before handing it back. When the conversation turned to plans for the future, you can imagine the disappointment when the two men found out that the other was staying. They had both kind of wanted the same thing, an island to themselves. In general, the cruisers got along, at least in the beginning. But over the next two months, as cruisers came and went, the tides turned. It began when Buck's dog, Popolo, bit Jack's son. He complained about it to his new friend, Matt Graham. Jack and Mac got along great. They admired each other's experience on the sea and with sailing, but they shook their heads at Buck and Stephanie, who were already asking for things. They weren't catching fish every day like they thought they would be, so Buck and Stephanie were soon running out of supplies. Stephanie began asking cruisers who came and went for things like sugar and flour. She spent her days gathering coconuts and cleaning them to make coconut butter and other things that she could trade for food. 
There were many days that went by where she and Buck ate only coconuts in order to preserve their limited food stores. When they were asked how they would get more supplies, they shared their plans for a marijuana farm. They didn't have much luck in this endeavor either, because most of the seedlings they'd planted from their seed supply were eaten by the crabs. At some point, they decided to build a rooftop garden in order to improve their outcome. This was hard work. They had to transport over 100 wheelbarrows full of dirt to the roof, and good soil was hard to find. Most of it was too sandy or salty. The best dirt was in the center of the island, which meant clearing a path. Then the dirt had to be carried to the roof. They begrudgingly did this work, and when the garden was ready to be planted, Buck and Stephanie argued. Stephanie had planned to plant almost all food, but Buck insisted that they plant mostly pot. Stephanie had already cut her food intake down to the bare minimum, one meal a day, but Buck still ate like a king. Her supplies were dwindling, and she knew they'd go hungry soon. Mac and Muff saw the couple struggling, and since they knew they'd be sharing the lagoon, they did the best they could to be nice, but not too nice. Mac and Muff had invited the younger couple over for dinner early on. Buck and Stephanie were green with envy when they entered the sea wind. It had all the amenities they dreamed of. Muff served them wine in wine glasses, and when Mac leaned over and switched on a lamp, it was the first artificial light that Buck and Stephanie had seen since leaving Hawaii. As a parting gift, Mac gave Buck some tobacco and rolling papers. Stephanie commented that Mac had just made a friend for life. Mac was pretty good at catching edible fish, so if he had an extra, he'd give it to Buck and Stephanie. Buck had pretty much given up on fishing, but he was seen firing his gun into the water in an attempt to shoot them. It didn't work. He took shortcuts when it came to gathering coconuts, too. He used a chainsaw to cut the trees down instead of climbing them. This angered Mac, who hated to see the destruction of a food source. He was also bothered by Buck's dogs. Buck had taken to living on the beach while Stephanie stayed on the boat. Their relationship wasn't going great, and besides, the dogs needed to go to shore pretty much every day anyway, so it worked out well, except that Buck didn't bother to watch the dogs, who were pretty much starving. They ran wild on the island, killing birds and rats for food. Papola was menacing to any cruiser who set foot on the beach. He bit a second visitor who threatened Buck, saying that if Papola bit him again, he'd shoot the dog. Buck's response was, well, at least then I'd have fresh meat. Muff was happy that Mac was happy, but she was kind of bored. She was also frustrated. She sent a letter home with cruisers who were passing through. They posted it when they reached Hawaii. In the letter, she complained about the hippie couple who said they wanted to rely on themselves and live alone on a deserted island, but were constantly asking for things. Buck's first words to new cruisers was often, Hey, do you have any pot? Muff also complained about the dogs. She said she can't even walk safely on the beach. She always had to carry a big stick with her in case Popolo came at her. The cruisers who came and went from the island began to sense tension between the inhabitants of the sea wind in the Iola. One even warned Mac and Muff to be careful about Buck and Stephanie. He said they seemed desperate. 
Imagine a beautiful, sail-worthy 37-foot sailboat in the harbor, full of supplies and luxuries. And on the other side of the harbor was an old, nearly sinking, damp, 27-foot junk boat that was not properly supplied for the time. Buck and Stephanie's eyes were green with envy. It took two months before Buck and Stephanie realized they had made a mistake. They didn't want to give up on their dreams, but they desperately needed more supplies. They decided they had to sail to the nearest island where they could buy some. The island was called Fanning, and it was nearly 200 miles away. It was a small atoll, too, but there were a few full-time inhabitants, which meant supply boats came by now and then. The problem was that they had no money, so they decided to part with a few things. They readied their boat and tried to sell things to cruisers. They even sold their generator to Mac and Muff for $50. This is interesting, because they needed that generator to power their bilge pumps. Remember, the boat leaked constantly? This would mean they would have to use buckets and muscle power to empty the bilge every day. Unfortunately, the outboard motor they had was not fixable, so they left it on the beach. They loaded the boat with over 30 coconuts and charged their batteries. They would be prepared to leave in a few days. The Grams would soon have the island to themselves, but they wouldn't be cut off completely from society. They had been very faithful each week, talking to a friend via ham radio. His name was Kurt Shoemaker. Every Wednesday, at the same time, they would talk with this friend, who would relay news and read letters from their families. It was the highlight of Muff's week. She would relish the news from home. They never missed their radio appointment. Until they did. The first Wednesday, the ham operator thought perhaps they were off the boat, or maybe they just forgot, but that wasn't Matt Graham's nature. He was meticulous. They'd always been available and on time before. He called every hour on the hour that first Wednesday, but then he thought maybe the radio had broken. He knew Mac would have it fixed soon. The second Wednesday, he tried again, but got no response. He tried over and over, but deep down he knew something was wrong. He called the Coast Guard, who told him they couldn't go check on every boat that didn't answer their radio when they were hailed. Besides, there was no distress call or no distress signal and no real proof of a problem. Kurt had to do something, so he asked a friend to fly over Palmyra to see if anyone was there. The pilot did so and said there were no boats at all. He said they saw no sign of anyone on the island either. Kurt was worried about his friends. He reported the incident to the Coast Guard again, and they once again said there was nothing they could do and suggested maybe the couple went somewhere else. Kurt had a really bad feeling and had to do something, so he reached out to a ham radio group in Hawaii. I imagine this is like a local Facebook group today. He asked them to keep an eye out for the sea wind. Shortly after Kurt's radio call for help, one of the boaters who had come and gone from Palmyra saw a boat make its way into one of Honolulu's yacht harbors. It anchored in the yacht basin. The boat had a fresh coat of purple paint. It also lacked a name painted on it and a home port. This is something that any boater would notice right away. 
This cruiser, who had come and gone from Palmyra, thought he recognized the boat as the Sea Wind. He watched, feeling confused and then concerned when he saw Buck and Stephanie emerge from below deck. He kept watching, but he never saw Mac or Muff. He'd also noticed that the dog netting from the Iola was now on the Sea Wind. He called the Coast Guard and told them of his suspicions, and at this point, the Coast Guard finally got involved. They went to the purple boat, but no one was aboard. They monitored the boat, waiting for Buck to return. They planned to take him in for questioning. The first night, the man on watch must have missed Buck and Stephanie's return to the boat, because the next morning they were seen rowing toward the docks. As the couple passed another boat, a cruiser mentioned to them that the Coast Guard had been looking for them the day before. Buck began to row quickly toward shore, but Stephanie insisted they go pick up her dog first. He said no, and had her drop him off at the dock, then she rowed back to the boat. She picked up the dog, and when she rowed back to the dock a second time, a Coast Guard boat approached. Buck dove into the water, and Stephanie ran down the dock with her dog. The agent followed her and was able to catch her very quickly as she had hidden behind a large potted plant. Buck, however, couldn't be found. After swimming underwater to escape the Coast Guard, he hid under the docks for as long as he possibly could. Then he snuck out and went into a store to buy dry clothes, a hat, and sunglasses to hide his identity. Stephanie was questioned. She was asked to explain why she and Buck were on Mac and Muff's boat. She said, you'll never believe what happened. She explained that Mac and Muff had invited them over for dinner, but they were going to go fishing first, with hopes of serving up a fresh meal. When Stephanie and Buck came aboard at the appointed time, no one was there, but there were snacks and drinks laid out for them. They made themselves at home, waiting and keeping an eye out for the Grams. Dusk came, but the Grams didn't. Buck and Stephanie were getting concerned. They decided to wait on the boat for their return. They spent a sleepless night on the boat, and the next morning they rowed their dinghy around the lagoons in Palmyra, searching for the older couple. But all they found was the Graham's dinghy, upside down. They figured they must have had an accident while fishing. Buck and Stephanie searched the island, but they never found Mac or Muff. They decided they needed to set sail on the Iola. When they were exiting the harbor, they hit the reef again. They got stuck, so they returned to the lagoon and took the sea wind instead. The Coast Guard wanted to know why they didn't let the authorities know what had happened right away, and Stephanie replied that she was worried about Buck going to jail. The Coast Guard took her back to the sea wind to take the other dogs off so they could do a proper search. While there, she was asked why they chose to flee when the Coast Guard approached. She said, well, we knew we were here in a boat that didn't belong to us. They took her to jail with charges for illegal transportation of stolen goods. She repeated her story when questioned by police. Then she went on to say that she believed that Mac and Muff would have wanted them to have the sea wind. She said they'd become great friends. She also said that as they left the harbor on the sea wind, they saw the Iola still stuck on the reef. On the trip back to Hawaii, they found $400 on the boat, 
and used that money to haul the boat out of the water, repaint it, and buy provisions. No one believed her story of Mac and Muff's demise, or their so-called great friendship. Muff's most recent letter home lamented about the hippie couple they were forced to share the island with, so it was unbelievable that they would be okay with Buck and Stephanie taking their boat. Buck was still on the run, so a manhunt was arranged. At the same time, authorities sent ten officers to Palmyra. There were no signs of anyone living on the island, and no signs of a boat in the harbor or a wreck on the reef. There was, however, a thriving garden of marijuana on the roof of one of the abandoned buildings. Although there was no evidence pointing to it, it was believed that there was foul play involved. Divers attempted to search the deeper lagoons, but due to the aggressive sharks, the dives were suspended. They switched to a shallower lagoon because they believed it was safer, but after entering the water, a large shark approached them. The shark was aggressive, so they hopped on top of some coral and waited until it left before wading back to shore. They found no evidence of Mac or Muff, or any kind of foul play. After Buck did the runner, the Coast Guard officer in charge took his photo to the station and asked around. He was immediately recognized as a fugitive. An all-points bulletin was issued. He'd been on the lam for ten days. He started by staying in a friend's apartment the first night. Then he flew to one of the adjacent islands. He stayed with another friend on Hilo and then bought some camping gear. He spent a week camping, but after a week he craved a hot meal and a comfortable bed. He stopped to eat at the St. Luke's Café. The powers that be must have been on the authorities' side because an officer stopped at the café and showed the waitress a picture of Buck. He asked her if she'd seen him, and she said, yes, he was just here. In fact, that's him. She pointed across the street to a man sitting under a tree. The FBI arrested Buck easily. His story was very much like Stephanie's. When he was asked why he repainted the boat, Buck said that they had been rammed by a swordfish on the way back to Hawaii. He said he had to patch the hole, and that's why they had to repaint. They used some of the $400 to do it because he was sure that's what the Grams would have liked him to do. The agent then asked Buck what he did with the bodies. Buck told them to fuck off. After several months, Mac and Muff were given an aloha ceremony. It wasn't a funeral. Rather, it was a goodbye, as friends and family realized it was time. Stephanie was eventually released on bail, but Buck remained in jail doing time for his previous offenses. Eventually, they were both found guilty of stealing the boat. Stephanie went to jail briefly for her part in the theft, but with no bodies and no evidence to the contrary, Buck and Stephanie couldn't be charged with murder or even be definitively linked to the disappearance of the Grams. While in jail for stealing the boat, Buck had the audacity to write to the Grams' family to ask for the sea wind. In the letter, he said he knew the Grams would have wanted the boat to stay with him and Stephanie. He tried to explain how deep their feelings were for the Grams and how close of a friendship they had. He had once told authorities that Mac had lost the boat to him in a game of chess. It was nonsense, and Buck was a liar. Six years later, 
Stephanie was working. Buck had escaped from jail. You heard that, right? And a woman named Sharon Jordan went for a walk on one of the beaches on Palmyra. She and her husband, and several others, I imagine, had talked about the case that had made headlines. For the moment, she and her husband were alone on the island. She was very fit and walked several miles each day on the long beaches. According to a book about this case, The Sea Will Tell, she would do this naked if there was no one else on the island. That day, as she headed up the shoreline, she saw something glistening in the sun. She made her way closer. When she realized what she was looking at, she screamed. She had come across a human skull, one with a gold-capped tooth. She also saw a box. Inside it, she saw a small bone and a wristwatch. She knew the bones hadn't been there before, and they had to have come from inside the box. She picked up the skull and saw a small hole in the temple, as well as what looked like burn marks. She thought immediately of the couple who had vanished on the island. She ran back to her boat and got in touch with the authorities. The man who was in charge at the Honolulu Coast Guard was the same one who was in charge at the time of the Graham's disappearance. He recognized the name Palmyra and the Grahams right away and was elated at the discovery of bones. He had always thought something bad had happened to Mac and Muff, and now he believed there was proof. He personally made the trip to the island, where he gathered the bones and the corroded metal box they had been found in. Through dental records, the skull was found to belong to Muff Graham. Her watch was identified by relatives. It was a miracle that the box and the bones were discovered on that day. They could have been washed away or covered up in a matter of hours. A small change in the tide or the wind could have washed all the evidence away. The bones told a story. It was believed that Buck, with or without Stephanie, forcibly attacked the Grahams, beating them and then killing them. Forensic experts suggested that the hole in Muff's skull could have been caused by a close-range gunshot. Buck, or the couple, tried to burn the bodies but couldn't do, do so. This was evidenced by the burn marks on Muff's skull. It didn't work, so the bodies were forced into metal boxes, which were thrown into the ocean and purposefully sunk. When the news broke in Hawaii, Stephanie turned herself in and authorities were once again searching for Buck. They found him through a new woman in his life. She had been married, but had visited Buck as part of a group of women who were trying to cheer up fugitives. She met Buck on that trip, and was soon coming back just to see him. On the day he escaped, she left her family with all the money from their savings accounts. U.S. Marshals found her and Buck in Arizona. He was taken into custody again, where he would face escape and murder charges. It was pretty obvious who murdered Mu Mac and Muff. There were only two couples on the island, after all. One of the more convincing arguments was about the Grahams' dinghy. The prosecution bought a dinghy just like the Grahams. They took four men out in it and tried to tip it over, and they simply couldn't do it. It was designed specifically not to capsize. If four men couldn't do it, two people who were supposedly fishing 
certainly couldn't have done it by accident. That information, along with Buck and Stephanie's odd behavior, stealing the boat and painting it, and their stories that changed, was pretty damning. Buck was found guilty. Months later, Stephanie was tried, but she was found not guilty. Stephanie's lawyer, Vincent Bugliosi, was famous. He had successfully prosecuted Charles Manson and his cult for the murder of Sharon Tate in the 1960s. He was able to convince the jury that Stephanie, helpless and naive, knew nothing about the murders and believed the lies that Buck fed her. The love is blind defense must have worked, even though that lagoon was small, and I'm pretty sure Stephanie kept a close eye on Buck. I think she knew what he was doing. Surely she would have argued against him selling his generator. She wouldn't have wanted to scoop the bilge out by hand every day. She would have been too busy looking for and preparing for food, and when they were going to sail to the nearest island for supplies, they'd definitely have needed the bilge to work. She was so busy steering and he was so seasick, there's no way she would have time to hand scoop water out of it. I think he told her his plan in advance. He sold the generator, and Stephanie knew they would get it back one day, and she knew they'd have a new boat one day. That's just my opinion. Vincent Bugliosi and Bryce Henderson wrote a book called The Sea Will Tell, which was one of my sources for this episode. It's very good, and it dives deeply into the trial, which I only briefly discussed. Buck was released in 2007 and died in 2010. While in prison, he wrote a novel about his version of events, saying that Muff fell in love with him and Matt killed her in a fit of rage. Then he turned the gun on Buck, making Buck's actions self-defense. If you'd like to, go ahead and read it. He's dead and he can't profit from it. That is the tale of the murders on Palmyra Atoll. Just one more curse to add to the list associated with the island. To be honest, I'd still go. I'd absolutely love to see the islands, explore the lagoon and the airstrip and the ruins. Have any of you listeners been there? I know there are a few sailors who listen, and I want to hear all about it. Thank you all so much for listening, and thanks to my wonderful Patreons who patiently waited and encouraged me during the production of this episode. You kept me going, as well as the wonderful people who give this podcast a nice rating and review, and those of you who support me on social media. There are several pictures to go with this episode. You can find them on Twisted Travel and True Crime's Patreon page, on Facebook, and on Instagram. There are links to those in the show description in your podcast app. Come join me and the rest of the Twisted Travelers online. We're a friendly group. I wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. <laughs>